0: G'day humans, welcome to the Safe Space for Dangerous Ideas, and what exciting times for this old project, which is about to expand massively. Great news, Uncomfortable Conversations will now become my main gig in the new year, meaning that you will get a lot more episodes, you will get them in video form instead of just audio. Uh, and uh, we'll be branching out and providing you with a lot more content. If you've ever been on the fence about whether or not to become a premium subscriber, I would tactfully suggest that you do so now. It's probably worth getting ahead of whatever it is that we roll out in the new year. There will be benefits to people who got in ahead of the ahead of the game. Uncomfortableconversations.substack.com Com. It's very easy. You don't even necessarily need a, a credit card yet. If you don't want to become a premium subscriber, you can just become part of the community for free just by entering your email address. And then at least you'll be kept up to date with whatever one of the things we're rolling out. Um, if you didn't hear the news in the rest of the press, I'm resigned from my ABC radio show last week. Um, without further ado, I think rather than explaining any ins and outs, it might be easier just to let you hear the way that I announced it to my listeners on the air. It's 20 to 3. Zoe texts in on the text line saying, Hi Josh, happy in your return from holidays. You can hear the chirpier within you. Holidays, as we all know, do help in a good break. Take care and regards. Thank you, Zoe. That's very sweet. What you're hearing in my voice may not only be because of holidays. As we approach the end of the year, there's always some speculation about The lineup of shows and presenters for the next year. And look, it's time for my contract to be renewed for 2024. And I want to tell you why I won't be signing it. And we'll be ending the show this year. I could spin you a lot of PR guff about how I just don't have time in my life for all the other things that I want to do, which is true. And I could talk about how I could make as much money for less work if I was working for myself, which is true and how I want to spend more time with my family, which is true, especially now that we've got a kitten. We got the kitten. She is adorable. Taco is her name. The kids may have had some role in naming Taco. But those things wouldn't be the whole story, and if you know me, you know that I don't do bullshit. I'm a bit of a straight shooter. The bottom line is I'm a bit too spicy for this gig, aren't I? I love the ABC. I love my colleagues. I love you, the listener, most of all, Toto. But what I love, really, above all else, is having uncomfortable conversations about the most provocative issues we face. I really believe democracy depends on upsetting the odd apple cart, triggering the odd tripwire, treading on the odd landmine. I kind of see that as my duty, and I think I'm good at it. And so I have to ask, where am I able to optimally fulfill that duty? The ABC is the greatest institution in Australian public life. I really believe it's the jewel in this country's crown. I have no beef with the ABC. I have no beef with its management. The acting manager of ABC Sydney, Mark Spurway, is a legend. The ABC Sydney boss, Steve Ahern, is a champion. His new boss, Ben Latimer, is a great guy, whip-smart. The new head of content, Chris Oliver-Taylor, is, if you're not in the industry, you may not be aware, a legend of Australian broadcasting who actually has the potential to transform the ABC in tremendously positive ways. And the managing director of the whole place, David Anderson, is the most warm, wonderful, passionate and tireless champion of everything that's good about public broadcasting. But having truly rational, bullshit-free conversations about controversial issues is risky these days. The penalties for speaking bluntly, the penalties for trying to coax people out of their thought silos and their echo chambers are very high. And the fact that it's risky only makes it more important to me And the fact that I found a way of doing it independently that's financially viable leads me to the question that I've been mulling over ever since chatter about the 2024 lineup began, which is, where am I of most use to the national conversation? I mean, you know me. If you're a regular listener to this show, you know I am the kid who gets invited to Christmas lunch and when somebody says, whatever you do, don't talk to old Uncle Herbie, he voted for Pauline Hansen, You'll end up in an argument. The first thing I do is head straight for old Uncle Herbie. You know, and as that old codger farts his way through the potato salad, I have an uncomfortable conversation with him about why he thinks migrants are responsible for bushfires and why he thinks Greta Thunberg is a Venezuelan secret agent. Look, maybe all I'll do is make the prim and proper partygoers uncomfortable. That's not my intention. But my hope... Is that by understanding Uncle Herbie's point of view, I might better understand my own. Everyone might better understand their own. Maybe there's value in consciously defying bubbles of conversational safety. And if the whole thing ends in tears with Uncle Herbie throwing his Christmas pudding in my face, then that, my friend, is what's technically called stretching the Uncle Herbie metaphor. But you get my gist. I don't want to be at a Christmas lunch where everyone talks in ways that are designed to reassure everyone else that they're on the correct side of worthy issues. I'm a misfit. I'm a child of refugees, but I'm a white Australian. I'm a gay guy, but I hate Mardi Gras. I have Holocaust-surviving grandparents, but I'm conflicted about Zionism. I'm an ABC presenter, but I don't like kale. I am a riddle wrapped in a bloody enigma, ladies and gents. And if you're not, and not everyone has to be, If you think that being a team player is the highest virtue, good for you. Join a pickleball squad. But don't pretend to be a journalist. Journalism needs more contrarians, not fewer, more risk-takers, not fewer. We need more Andrew Ollies, more young John Pilgers and Mike Carlton's and Helen Lewis's and John Stewart's and Jermaine Greer's and Christopher Hitchens's. The way to expand the conversation is to expand the people having the conversation, not just in ways that prioritise superficial diversity, but in ways that reward true idiosyncrasy. As I say, I love the ABC. This institution is honestly our best hope if we're going to survive the challenges of this century as a country that we would recognise as Australia. The ABC is indispensable. The ABC deserves our support, it certainly deserves more funding, and yet at the same time, I have this parallel life going on, where my podcast is a place where I've been having nonsense-free conversations about the most controversial challenges that we face, and it's become a big hit. We've had over three million downloads, and at the risk of being immodest, which as you know is what people say when they have no intention of not being immodest, It's one of the most successful Australian interview shows in the world. It does turn out that people are craving a kind of conversation that they're not hearing in the mainstream media. So I got myself a great podcast producer, Stefan, and a great podcast distributor, and we're making money. We launched a premium subscription on Substack where you get bonus content for a small monthly fee and we ended up with one of the highest paid conversion rates of any show on this global Silicon Valley-based platform. So then we go, well, what about expanding into video content? That's another audience. That's another revenue stream. So in the new year, I'm launching a YouTube show with the network founded by the Batuta Advocate team, if you know that satirical institution. I have TV development deals on ice, a couple of book offers. I'm a professional fellow at the University of Technology, Sydney, This summer, I'm launching a live podcast tour, bringing some of the biggest guests from around the world to join me on stage in Sydney and Melbourne, Brisbane, Adelaide and Perth. That's in collaboration with Australia's best touring company, Teg Dainty, which handles the likes of Jerry Seinfeld and Richard Dawkins and Guns N' Roses. I'll leave it to your imagination which of those three my tour will be most like. sweet child of mine will definitely be (laughs) on the cards. (laughs) I say all of this not to big note myself, I just say it it's a long winded way of saying that I don't actually have a financial reason necessarily to be at the ABC. I am beyond grateful to everyone who made my little patch of this institution a success. Over the past dozen rating surveys this shows ratings have increased, thanks largely to my beloved Jane, Robbie, Hannah, Elizabeth, Rosh, and Steve. Uh, The only shows on this station that are competitive with 2GB, our main competitor, are Afternoons and Drive. Um, This show does do better than its Melbourne counterpart in the ratings and in cumulative listens. It has one of the largest cumulative audiences of any show on this station. So I'm grateful, enormously proud and thankful. And to every listener, I would hate for you to hear this and think that it's the end of our relationship because it's actually the beginning of my main event. You can go to joshzepps.com if you want to stay up to date, sign up for a mailing list, which will take you through how you can keep me in your ear holes. I have loved spending my afternoons with you. Uh, I'll be here till the end of the year. I'm so privileged to have had this show. It's an incredible honour to have a show on the ABC. I'm grateful to everyone I've worked with, and I wish the ABC and its management and all its employees nothing but the best. Australia needs a strong, strong, and independent ABC. So that was that. Uh, I'm super excited. I'm super grateful to everybody at the ABC. Wish them all the best and uh, and incredibly liberated and over the moon about this next chapter of my media adventure. And before embarking on my own path, I wanted to speak with the most successful person who has recently pulled that off. Barry Weiss is perhaps the most successful independent media pioneer in the United States, perhaps the world. She used to be an opinion writer and editor at the New York Times. Before that, she was an op-ed and book review editor at the Wall Street Journal and a senior editor at Tablet Magazine. And you will hear in this conversation her account of her uh, exit from the New York Times, um, which certainly has some resonance, uh, I am certainly empathetic, shall we say, to Barry's experience, to put it tactfully. Uh, she went off and founded an entire media company called The Free Press, of which she is now the editor. There's so much we could have talked about. I love Barry's mind. I could follow it down a million rabbit holes for a million hours, but enjoy what we could discuss issue with the one and only... Very Wise. How's my her? Your her is always fabulous, baby. Fabulous. I would, I you always a divine.
1: You're so sweet. I really don't. We both know I gain. You don't know this. I gained so no. much weight in COVID, basically from drinking. Yeah. But then I went on yeah. Ozempic and solved the whole problem.
0: Get the fuck out of here! I did exactly the same thing without the Ozempic part. <laughs> I put on, I put on like twenty pounds in the first year of the pandemic. Ice oh, cream and Netflix will do that. And then I was like, oh, I'm going to become a fat man. You know, it was like <laughs> there was that moment where I was like. If I don't change something, I will just be a fat, I will be a portly gentleman. I mean, you, look, more, about you look way Thank skinnier
1: you. than when I met you. Wait, hold on one second. Yes. Yeah, my hair is like all in the tape. It's really bothering me. Hold on one second. I'm sorry.
0: See, this is when you get to a certain level of success, you become a deeper about your
1: completely. Yeah, so much better. Oh, is that yeah.
0: Better?
1: yeah. Oh, yeah. And-
0: you're right. And then, so after I put on 20 kilos, then I lost, I mean, 20 pounds, then I lost like 50 pounds after, in the second year. Yeah. Like I was going to
1: say, you're the most felt I've ever seen you by far. Thank
0: you. Thank you very much. God bless you. You too. So the Zempik's working out. Are you still on it? It
1: worked out. It worked out. God knows what kind of weird cancer I've given myself, but at least <laughs> I'm skinny for a minute.
0: Well, I actually did a story yesterday on my soon-to-be-no-longer uh, radio show about Azempic in Australia. And- the dietician was saying it is great but you are mostly losing like muscle and bone and stuff. So it makes you skin skinny but sort of haggard. But you I don't mean, look haggard.
1: Do I look haggard?
0: No, no, you look you look bright and bright-eyed and bushy-tailed.
1: I mean, I have no bones left in my body and <laughs> <You> <laughs> are
0: basically a suit of what's just left, muscle and flesh. What's
1: left of my organ. I mean, yeah. <laughs> anyway, we could we could go on uh, right about this, Josh, but How
0: are you my love? How are you holding up in these insane times?
1: I have to be honest. I, it's been like one long day since October 7th. Like I, I've i literally I've never experienced time in this way. I, I mean, the only thing that's comparable to it, I guess, is when we had the baby and sort of like the sleeplessness and the way that the days would bleed into each other. It's been a little like that. Mm. Um, but yeah, I, like I, October 7th happened and then I looked up and now it's well, you guys don't mm. have Thanksgiving, but Thanksgiving. and
0: I did Thanksgiving this weekend for the first time oh, in Australia, did? Barry, because I'm married to an American bloke. I and know. Every year he says, you know, uh, every year after Thanksgiving, he's like, I wish we could kind of bring Thanksgiving here. And I was like, this year, I was like, there will be no regrets. Your wish is a man. So did, you, We're make the, invite a did you make the turkey? Yeah, I made a turkey. I made the first turkey of my life. It was oh my gosh! I was shitting. I was shitting liquid for the next twenty-four hours. So I don't know if I did something <laughs> wrong, but I got <laughs> it was tell delicious you. at the time.
1: Oh, that's so great! Yeah, remember when, I, remember when? Remember when I was in Australia? Those were the days. Oh, oh. Those were the. Those were the simple, simple times.
0: I was just starting out. I was full of promise about the mainstream media and all of the all of the opportunities that it and, would provide and me you're with. Now you a
1: liberated man. I was. I was just catching up on <sighs> on all of it.
0: Amazing. I mean, so you know, I'd love being driven out of your place of work because a risk-averse corporation can't handle the range of perspectives you want to wrestle with. is not something that you would be familiar with.
1: Barry. Not at all. Uh, I have no idea what you're talking about.
0: <laughs> uh, I want to talk about, about.
1: But yeah. Josh, the thing about you is, you always seemed like so reasonable. Like, well, thank is, you. Is, is your sort of? I don't know if it was a self-deportation or. Uh, it, was uh, a it was a
0: self-deportation when it, when it reached a certain level yeah but you know what there's a different it's hard I don't know how what it was like but for I, you I very was gonna enough. say yeah, is, is so. the Australian
1: context even more sort of narrow than the American one because you I, yeah
0: maybe it's narrower but less uh hostile I thought like less partisan and less divided but maybe because of that more unaware of its own boundaries, you know, the boundary of the tightness of the echo chamber of the thought silo, perhaps. I mean, it was it's one of those things where when people ask, did I jump or was I pushed? It's actually a little bit hard to know because there are so many factions inside the organization that you're not aware of what they're actually wanting. So things come at you and you go, are they just being unreasonable or do they want do they know that this is going to push me out?
1: I mean, there's a zillion things I want to ask you about it, but I don't know if you want to go there.
0: I don't. I look, I, we will catch up perhaps on the air or perhaps off the air sometime in 2024. Um, Are you and, coming
1: to the States at all?
0: Yeah, I will. I will. I'll do, a, I'll do oh, a, great. a victory lap when I launch the new podcast. Maybe I'll have a set as beautiful as yours because we're, we're We're now going to expand this operation and do it all legit because that'll be. I, I don't want to be employed by another employer. I'm just going to be solo like you. So that'll mean d- beautiful library style sets like the I'm one. I'm so glad
1: it me. looks that. I wish you could see it the looks... broader room that we're in, uh, but we've we've learned how to fake luxe on the a cheap
0: st- sound stage in Culver City.
1: No, you're literally we're in a former casting office in Los Angeles um that I mean the the level of schmutz in this building I, mm-hmm. I really can't quantify it for you. It yeah. looks
0: fabulous, and I'm Thank so you. delighted. I'm so delighted that you've well, created I mean, the invite. Well, it's
1: really you because um, you know, as much as it can look like a you know a solo act, the only reason that it, I'm not sort of in some basement uh, looking you know in terrible lighting is because I'm working with just unbelievable people who have been joining the Free Press since it became the Free Press a year ago, and there's twenty there's twenty people that work here now, which Get is out. no, it's crazy.
0: How it's do you crazy. pay them all, or do they eat like cat food?
1: No, people eat very well here.
0: <laughs> you know? Wagyu,
1: wagyu beef burgers, Get for lunch out.
0: on uh, often. I could, I could tell that you had twenty people because before you came, uh, it came to air. There were about 17 12 year olds running around fixing everything for you. <laughs> right, it was so child
1: child labor. oh I dropped this. You uh, know,
0: Australian we, labor we laws. We talk.
1: I mean, true. I think I think a big a big question you will face and maybe you already know the answer to it because a lot of it is personality driven is whether or not you want to be working essentially completely alone on the Josh zepp's you know show or if you want to sort of build a new institution and it became mm-hmm. clear to me that that is what I wanted to do um you know foolishly I had no idea sort of how absolutely difficult that was going to be I had no ambition to be an entrepreneur a startup person any of that stuff but here I am, no Sam Altman, but doing what I can <laughs> to, to build a new media company.
0: Sam Altman, without the jail fraud part.: No, you
1: know? you, you're talking about Sam oh, Bankman, Sam Free Altman From AI.: Yeah, sorry, this is the only story i am talking AI. about today. Has, okay. that, has that like crossed over?: I you guys just following woke it?
0: Up. I've barely had a coffee yet. What's Sam doing? What's Open AI doing?
1: In the course of the past 72 hours, Sam Altman was fired summarily and shockingly, as the head of OpenAI. Then it appeared he was going to get rehired, came back into the building with a guest pass, was talking about it. In the meantime, all of the leadership of OpenAI said they were going to walk with him. So everyone thought the board's made a horrible decision. They're going to reverse course. Then they actually said, nope, we're not reversing course. We're sticking the landing. We're appointing the CEO of Twitch, this guy Emmett Shear." To be the head of OpenAI looked like Sam had lost, but no, he didn't because Satya Nadella of Microsoft said, "I'm hiring Sam under Microsoft, which owns OpenAI." And as of this recording, 700 of like 800 staffers are leaving OpenAI to work for Sam Altman at Microsoft. Get out! It is like it is succession in real time, Uh. but like the entire like all of the seasons collapsed into 72 hours. It, it's unbelievable. It you have to go read about it.
0: Because I'm a selfish person, all I can think right now is last week I was going to buy some Microsoft stock and I'll Bullf. bet it's just gone up by 20%. It's,
1: I, I mean, I assume that it has. I know nothing about stocks, but OpenAI, of course, is absolutely tanked. And the most crazy part of it is there's. these are all new characters to me, but other than Sam, who I've been following and interested in for a while and came on the podcast, one of the I think even the head of the board of OpenAI, a guy called Ilya, who's known Sam for a long time, involved in Wine Combinator. I think he was the head of the board. Three hours after the whole thing went down, he said, "I regret my participation in this ouster," and even he is following. So the whole thing is wow. Un- it's unbelievable.
0: It's okay. It's unbelievable. Well- I'm Microsoft for the win, baby. I've been this is I've been I've been talking about Microsoft and AI for a while, mainly because I just borrow what I believe from like Scott Galloway and various other investors who I respect. But that it's so it's going to be so fascinating over the next five years to see how like large language models and machine learning disrupt the way that we live. I mean, I'm super interested in and and with, who ends up taking the crown? I reckon Microsoft, but- along with
1: the one of the reasons this story is really interesting and you'll have fun reading about it is that you know the reporting's just start starting to come out but like what are the deeper philosophical implications of it cuz obviously it's insane sort of like castle drama but mm. the what i'm gathering from everything i'm reading is that if if there was sort of a deeper philosophical disagreement that all of this was about it was sort of the fight between the people yelling stop and saying AI is going to destroy civilization and swallow the world, there needs to be a pause versus sort of the accelerationists that claim mm. that mm. rushing toward AI is sort of a moral obligation. So the fight between the accelerationists and the decelerationists seems to be sort of one of the threads in this story. Anyway, I'm... Do you have I, an instinct on that, Barry? I don't... I mean, in, in general, in general, I would say that I'm sort of... Not with the dystopians. In general, I'm with the people who believe that technology is sort of a neutral force that can be used for good or bad. But in general, trying to stop its progress is not only a fool's errand, but often the people who have done it, when you sort of look back on history, look like, you know, like look like fools. There's a really great um, I think it's on Substack, but there's a really great blog that tracks the reaction to, like, the wheel and the yeah. car and the slide yeah. rule. And everyone at every moment was saying this is going to be the downfall of civilization. And, of course, all of those well, wait, things... But there,
0: wait, there may be two things that you're conflating there. One is whether or not there's something different about this particular technological revolution and whether it could destroy us all. And the other is whether or not stopping it or pausing it is likely to be useful, right, or, or feasible, like whether that's even... Like, yeah. I, I think you can hold both of those. I mean, I think there is a non-zero chance that this could destroy civilization. And I also think there's no point in trying to pause it or because like invent have... research into it. Yeah. it's but, I mean, but, humans but, are-
1: But do you, do you think that only, you know, from a strategic perspective, like if we pause, China's not going to pause and therefore yeah. we have a moral obligation not to pause? Yeah. yeah.
0: Basically, it's an arms race. Like, I'm glad we got the bomb, you know? Right. I'd right. rather live in a world with no nuclear bombs, but- I don't- I'm I mean, I,
1: I read like everything Tyler Cowen writes about AI and I read some of these other people you've mentioned as well. I still don't understand how it works in the same way that if you <laughs> ask me to describe, like ask me to describe how the internet works. I'm like, there are tubes under the ocean. Like, yeah. I, I don't, I don't know, but yeah. I gotta be honest, like uh, pre October 7th, I might have had a more cogent answer to that question and <laughs> But nobody it, does know
0: how I, it works. That's what's terrifying about it. The people who are building yeah. it aren't quite sure why it's doing what it's doing. I mean yeah. I heard someone describe it as being it's like we've designed a portal and there are things coming out of the portal and even the people who designed the portal aren't quite sure what the things are I know. Or what they're gonna do or what their intentions are, but we're like, these portals are amazing. Look at all the shit coming out of them And you know, some people are saying, I'd be careful about the <laughs> I'd be careful about the ghost <laughs> portal that you're building, uh, and nobody quite knows. So totally. is the internet. It is like you remember that you remember the senator who tried to describe the internet as uh, uh, he was like, you know, the internet, the internet is not a truck. You can't just back it up and put all the information out of it. The internet's a series of tubes, <laughs> and, and Al Franken, when he was senator, he got up and he said. that, uh, well, you're 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 you are right about one thing. The internet is not a truck. Truck. <laughs> uh,
1: <laughs> there are troops hey. involved. I hear. You're I guess right what I that. guess what I mean is like my mind was so much more sort of ranging and thinking about these kinds of issues that felt more theoretical. But right now, my mind has just been so fixated on the war and mm-hmm. you know, the widening war and and what it means for the
0: West and. Talk to anyway, me about all what of those all of those West? extremely
1: so, light subjects.
0: <laughs> I mean, so there'll be some people listening to this, and maybe ten percent of me is in this camp, which thinks we've been over this a million times since October seventh. We all know the basic parameters of what's happening. It's a tale as old as time. Two people want the same land. Uh, the Palestinian, you know, the certainly the. Bulk of public opinion in places like Australia and Europe, and increasingly probably in the US, is, I think, simplistically uh, siding with the the people who are hurting the most right now, which is Palestinians in Gaza. And that's
1: definitely not true in America. Seventy five percent or more of Americans still side with Israel. If you watch TikTok or Twitter, you might have a different perception of that. Right. But
0: yes. That definitely not that's the case in America. On. So I think, I think people, well, side with Israel, I think, I think most Australians would side with Israel in the sense that they think that Israel deserves to exist, and they think Hamas is a, a terrible organization. Uh, but I think they would also think that there are underlying problems about the long-term viability of Palestinian self-government that has made a conflict like this inevitable. And of course, chickens were going to come home to roost at some point, and it was not viable for Israel to keep the entire people in, you know, open air refugee camps in perpetuity. So something was going to give and this was the horrible way in which it's giving. What's wrong with that?
1: Oh, I mean, the paradigm that you laid out in the beginning is wrong with that. This is not the the war is not about a contest over land. If it was a contest over land, as maybe your listeners don't recall, you know, Israel pulled out of Gaza in 2005. It's been completely Rhine since 2005 what the war is about is, you know, what Hamas has in its charter. It's it's a war against Jewish existence. And that's why I think it's significant for the West, the world, and why, you know, it's, as, I'm, as I've been reading, and I've been so curious, actually, and waiting for this conversation, because I'm so curious if my perception of what's happening in Australia is accurate to your experience of it, because it seems like, the kinds of things I'm seeing on Twitter is that there has just been a, an explosion of sort of viperous Jew hate in Australia in the way that there certainly has been across Western Europe, really, you know, Europe writ large and America as well. And the reason for that is because this isn't sort of a fight between two peoples that have contested claims to land, although that is true between Israelis and Jews, Palestinians and Arabs. But it's really about the desire to wipe the world of its Jews. Uh, and the notion that sort of Hamas would stop if somehow it got land is just an absolute farce.
0: I don't see the wiping the world of Jews thing, at least not overtly. And I'm for my own mental sanity, I'm staying off social media, so I'm not seeing whatever you're seeing. Um, oh, my
1: God. Okay.
0: My experience, like, just as a journalist and a citizen is that there is once again an easy that people are responding to their um, post-colonial bias like we have a laudable instinct in the west to be mindful of our history of colonialism and so we just have a template or a heuristic onto which we superimpose every conflict which says if there's a poor brown person in rubble that person is in the right and if there's a white whitish person or whiter person wearing a suit and talking fancy words who may be responsible for the brown person's plight. That person is a colonizer and they're in the wrong.
1: Right. And that it, template is just collapses all moral distinction. And it's the reason right. It's the reason that you see people across the West, including some of the most sort of pedigreed, educated people, uh, making excuses or even celebrating mass rape, live incineration, the tying together of parents to their children, unspeakable acts of evil. It's why you see them justifying it because they're falling for a framework that, you know, at every single juncture of what you just said falls apart under when it when it touches reality.
0: That's right. Yeah. I mean, I think that's right. And I think people don't necessarily understand Nineteen forty-eight. They don't necessarily understand sixty-seven or seventy-three. They don't necessarily understand Oslo. They don't understand the ins and outs of all this stuff. So, but
1: yeah, but even my feeling about any of that is is like none of that is really relevant to this moment. It like none of that. You don't need to know anything about the establishment of the state of Israel, about nineteen sixty-seven, about Oslo, about about the pullout from about any of that to look at the at what Hamas did that day and say that is evil and no amount of context no amount of sort of historical nuance can justify it and the fact that we have so many people who claim to be progressive claim to be on the right side of history who you know cry crocodile tears over the slightest microaggression justifying it <laughs> tells you something like very very scary and profound about the depth of moral, I would even say spiritual rot in our societies. And so when when you say, like, why is this, what are the implications for the West? I think they're profound. Like, what does it mean to live in a culture in which college professors are saying that what happened on October 7th was awesome and that they're exhilarated by it? What does it mean when, you know, an editor of the Harvard Law Review is trying to physically assault an Israeli student, as happened on Harvard's campus? What does it mean when, you know, a public defender that my wife went to college with is seen tearing down the posters of kidnapped Israeli women and children? Like, what what universe have we entered where that kind of morally inverted view of the world has become acceptable, even high status, really? Mm. Um, and a sort of basic fundamental view of, like, good and bad civilization and barbarism is seen as sort of, like stupid or or low status in some way. And that's, I think, mm. where we are. And that, yeah. I think, should be concerning yeah. to everyone who wants to live in a country where the virtues that have made our lives possible, like, and I mean, specifically our lives, you know, are not protected because people either are taking them for granted, think they can sort of be tossed away, don't understand how fragile they are. Um, and I think a lot of people, if there's a silver lining to the past few weeks, have sort of waken, woken up, like real woke, to how fragile um, our freedoms are. Uh, and you know, even that, even the word freedom, I'm sure, is like coded in some kind of politicized mm. way for people, but not for me.
0: It's fascinating. I mean, the the what comes to mind is just that it's worth separating out uh, the various categories of wrong here, right? So the the category of, of of moral error that you're talking about, which is the people who actually would justify, let alone celebrate what happened on October 7th, I'm just parking as so self-evidently awful that I'm, I'm just going to put that to the side because I, I just don't think there are that many people who actually think that what Hamas did but, on October Josh, 7th Josh, was just, great.
1: But just think about, okay, fine, but put aside the people celebrating it. What about the silence? Think about just just take one example. Okay, there's evidence of cri- crimes that I can't even talk about without breaking down on this video that I'll just say rape as a weapon of war, but things that are significantly worse than just what you think about when you think of rape. I'm talking about people mutilated. Okay? I'm like such unspeakable horrors happened. And yet, you know, I'm on the list serves of many feminist organizations here in America who had a lot to say in the era of Me Too, who had a lot to say about horrible things that happened on casting couches. They have had nothing to say in the wake of this. Like, what is that?
0: Don't you think that they think that it's it's self-evidently wrong? So what's the point in saying?
1: No, absolutely not. I think they've been Mm. completely subsumed by the sort of postmodern, postcolonial, morally relativistic view that you just laid out, which erases the distinction between good and evil and says that powerful, powerful, however you're defining that, is bad and suspicious. The powerless are necessarily good. And they have fallen into that trap when it comes to the story of, you know, the Israelis and the Palestinians. That's what I think.
0: I mean, to me, what's interesting about this particular moment and this this particular cultural rift that's kind of ballooning like a mushroom cloud out of the 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 devastation of October 7th is the, just to I'm trying to, I guess, steel man, the opposing point, right? So I think most listeners can understand why it's horrible to advocate to or to celebrate for the rape and dismemberment of innocent civilians on October seventh. What, it, where I think people find it confusing, and where it's probably useful to try to tease apart what's going on psychologically, is the attitude of "of course that was horrible, and it's horrible for babies to be buried under piles of rubble because uh, you know they're they're living in." Gaza, and it's horrible for people to have no aspirations for their future. This is why I go back to like the historical context, because the powerlessness and innocentness of the Palestinian people, not as individual human beings, but as a movement for national self-determination, actually is relevant in understanding the kind of moral valence here. If, since 1948, Israel had relentlessly pursued the subjugation of Palestinians with, and and if the Arab states had welcomed the Jews with open arms and the Jews had been persistent aggressors and the Israelis had never provided a window of opportunity for Palestinian statehood, then I think the moral valence would actually be different because you'd be able to, I mean... So yeah, I mean, in terms of the steel manning option, I think there's a lot of what's going on, which is Hamas is terrible. What they did on October seventh is terrible. Also, Israel does terrible things. Both sides, both sides. But so it's, let's y- right you know, that—that's the thinking, I think. Which of I course, find harder I mean, to object to than
1: I, you I know, think. Sa- you know, Sam Harris. Yeah, I really commend anyone listening to this to go listen to the episode Sam Harris has done on this. Um, we, re- we reposted one of his in the Honestly Feed, I think the bright line between good and evil, but the one before yeah. that, I'm forgetting the title, which talks about intentionality and the idea that, you know, in, in the case of Hamas, a genocidal death cult, the goal was to savage and maim and mutilate and murder as many Israelis as possible. And, you know, again, I guess there are people who might not believe this in the case of Israel genociding the Palestinian people is simply not the goal wiping out Hamas is the goal and as Sam has pointed out if Israel wanted to genocide the Palestinian people it could do that immediately right now and that's simply not the goal if you look at the population that has swelled in Gaza over I mean we could we could like do this whole thing but I also yeah, yeah, don't yeah. want to I don't want to yeah. uh, hijack the conversation because I know you've done yeah. one with Eli and other people as well.
0: Yeah. And I, I mean, it's, I'm with you. I'm with you. I mean, I'm just, my heart is is broken and I'm incredibly nervous about the fate of not just the region, but all of Western liberalism, really. Uh, you know, when you take what's going on in the Middle East with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, with China's, assertiveness with the stresses that are being put on liberal democracy by forces of the far right and social media algorithms and whatever else and then you add what I think is stressing us a lot as well which we don't necessarily always notice which is uh, climate events where you we're, we're just sort of being drained by the increasing regularity of wildfires and hurricanes and droughts and uh, it's, it's a, a, big a happy challenge.
1: time. It's a happy time. <laughs> <laughs> but then, you I, know, what, I mean, but I I'm Josh, also optimistic. Oh, I, I am too. I'm a Jew. Of course I'm optimistic. <laughs> I mean, the the I just want to say one thing about Israel, just lest anyone have any confusion about where I sit. You know, I can say everything I just said about Hamas and believe that Bibi Netanyahu is a corrupt, power-hungry leader that needs to step aside for the good of Israel, that Jewish settlers in the West Bank that are terrorizing Palestinians right now are terrorists and there can be such thing as Jewish terrorism. I mean I, it's very possible to just hold all of these things in your head at once that you know that all of the children that are dying in the rubble in Gaza you know it, it it's horrible. It's a, it's a it's a horrific tragedy. It's horrific and you know I I'm holding it together now but I mean there have been so many nights since October 7th where I'm just looking at the news and just weeping. I mean, the fact that there are Israeli parents who have three-year-olds, 10-month-olds. There's a Thailand-y, There's a woman from Thailand that gave birth in the tunnels under the Gaza Strip. You know, a father, the father of a little girl called Emily Hand, who was relieved when he thought she was dead, but then found out that she has been held by Hamas for the past 40 days. It's just like it's just horrific. I mean, the whole situation mm. is just heartbreaking. It really is. Mm. But then we can pivot and talk about World War Three and get really upbeat.
0: <laughs> no, well, I thought- look. I, whenever I get the, whenever I get down on history, I always remember that my dad was born in a refugee camp during World War II in Switzerland, as his parents, who were Holocaust, you know, survivors, were had been fleeing the Nazis, and you know, it didn't stop my People say, like, how could you bring a child into this world, you know, this troubled world of climate change and chaos? And, like, the I most- don't know, things didn't look very good in 1943 for a Jew in exactly. occupied France either. But they went ahead, and I owe my life to that.
1: Yes, and it's also, I mean, it's the most optimistic thing in the world that you can do. Like, yeah. you know, we have a 14-month-old, and it's just like I've never – I just feel like the whole world – has opened up for me, and I I, I I truly feel like I didn't understand the world before. But also, it means that you know the way that I consume news and the way that the way that these stories impact you as a parent. I I don't know how you feel, but I just feel it's really really different. It's just much mm. more profound.
0: Yeah, especially if it has to do with kids. I just blubber like a baby. I mean, there can be yeah. like an ad for AT&T where they're calling <laughs> their kid abroad. And I'm like, it's so beautiful, a little baby. Uh, yeah. How many kids months do you have? I, Remind me. Yeah, I have twins, two six-year-olds now, right. believe it or not. Would you believe so 6 year So That's so 14 amazing. 14 months is great. I remember 14 months being a moment where they really stop being an annoying lizard and turn into a human being, you <laughs> it's, know? It's
1: really, it's amazing. It's yeah, amazing. That's great. But Nelly and I, I was sort of always thinking like two kids will be enough, and now I'm like Nelly, as many as you want, we'll do it.
0: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Tune in next week for the eight exactly. eight, eight child, Optimum. yeah, all in the family, the oh, white yeah, family October. story. <laughs> that's right. Um, I want to talk about the mainstream media. It's on my mind. You know the challenge of having uh, institutions that are able to grapple with the most capacious possible expanse of ideas and that are enthusiastic about triggering tripwires and and running across the whole intellectual terrain instead of um being risk averse and and capturing themselves into the correct opinions about things is uh i think probably one of the big pressing challenges of the 21st century and i wonder can you just take us back for people who don't remember the sure. your origin story what was <laughs> it like
1: <laughs> well born in 1984 um <laughs> the the my parents tell me i was conceived on july 4th uh which who knows if that's true um okay professionally i the 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 thing that's relevant i think to to your listeners your viewers is that um people will remember the sort of very very intense summer of 2020 where you had COVID lockdowns then combined with black lives matter peaceful protests but also riots in cities across the country and I had been brought into the New York Times in the wake of Trump's election in a sort of brief window of soul searching that the paper experienced. How was it that the paper that prides itself on speaking to the country, on capturing the mood of the country, on holding up a mirror to the world it has, as it actually is? How did they tell us, you know, that Hillary Clinton was going to win with 99 percent certainty? And yet my mother for whom, for her work, she has to sort of drive two hours outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and was calling me saying, I've never seen signs like this in my life. Trump's going to win. How did she get it right and the New York Times got it wrong? Well, that was a question they were wondering, too. And to put it bluntly, I was brought in, along with Brett Stevens from the Wall Street Journal, as a kind of intellectual diversity hire. Now, it tells you a lot about <laughs> the New York Times that, like, a pro-choice Jewish gay woman from the Midwest was their intellectual diversity, but there you go. And my job explicitly was to bring in voices that wouldn't otherwise naturally appear in the New York Times, either because other editors wouldn't think to commission them or the writers themselves would think, you know, the New York Times would never accept me. So that meant everyone from people like Ayan Hersia Ali to, um, you know, the Iranian dissident Masih Alinejad to underground pastors in China hiding their Christianity um, to first time writers like you name it. But I think my What I was known for was getting sort of non-progressive voices into the paper. So I remember specifically a piece by Thomas Chatterton Williams, the black intellectual who I'm sure you've had on, or if not, you should, on Ibram Kendi, like things that were just spicy and a little hot to handle. And I loved it. And it was great. And from the very beginning, I was uncool. People there didn't like me. We can speculate about why that is. I think my support of Israel had something to do with it. But I could give a rat's ass because, holy shit, I got to work at The New York Times and the privilege, if I can use that word, if it hasn't been so sullied, of getting to reach so many people, of getting to publish my own pieces, was just so exhilarating and exciting. And it didn't matter to me that people kind of gave me the cold shoulder. Fast forward to the summer of 2020. The New York Times ran an op-ed by Republican senator from Arkansas named, uh, named Tom Cotton who he is, kind of irrelevant. The the point is, is that he published a pretty incendiary op-ed called Send in the Troops, which made the argument that not in the case of peaceful protesters, but in the case of violent rioting, that the National Guard should be brought in to put down the rioting. Now, this was misread. It was misconstrued to say he was talking about peaceful protesters. But in any event, um, it led to an absolute meltdown inside the newspaper. Something like 800 of my colleagues signed a letter. Some say the number was way higher that this op-ed literally put their lives in danger. James Bennett, my boss who had hired me, who had formerly been the Jerusalem bureau chief, had covered the second intifada, had done a lot of things to sacrifice, you know, his safety and his time and his, you know, talents to the paper was pushed out after two days. Two other people were reassigned or demoted. And I found myself wondering what the hell I was doing. I had nothing to do with the piece. I didn't commission it. I didn't edit it. I only saw it when it appeared on the website like everybody else. But because I had been known as someone who sort of didn't go along with every aspect of the New Orthodoxy, I was seen as suspicious. And what had been a sort of like cold hostility became hot. People in company-wide Slack channels were putting ax emojis next to my name were openly asking in all company meetings uh, when I was going to be fired. And, you know, and and I sort of faced a choice, uh, Josh, and maybe it's a choice that you relate to. And and the choice was this. You know, I had seen what they had done to someone who had dedicated their life to the paper and the way that his risk taking, you know, his specific mandate was to bring in other voices that wouldn't normally appear in The New York Times that was how that was sort of one of the great lessons from Trump at least for a moment of we're not listening to wh- to to what half of the country is saying let's really listen and what was his risk taking intellectually rewarded with getting pushed out of the newspaper where he had spent his entire career and i said to myself like if this is what they're willing to do to someone who has given so much of their life to the paper what will they do to me if i have a misstep and more to the point like It was an environment that was so, where it was already so, so difficult to sort of smuggle through uh, heterodox ideas or controversial ideas or ideas that might rub a colleague the wrong way or might get you accused of, you know, any one of the isms or phobes that you get accused of every day if you trip over those tripwires you mentioned. So do I stay and sort of cling to the prestige of Being able to tell people I work at The New York Times, which at least, you know, on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, where I lived at the time, was definitely an asset, maybe not in Arkansas, but definitely in in Manhattan. (laughs) Or do I leave? And do I leave to sort of pursue the curiosity that led me to become a journalist in the first place? And I left and I left in a sort of very loud way with this open letter uh, to the publisher of the newspaper, A.G. Sulzberger. And thus began a period of intense day drinking, uh, uh, weight gain, and uh, casting about for what I would do next. And well, here I am doing what I decided ultimately to do next. But, you know, it's it's a long-winded way of saying like, you know, it was it was like one of the few moments in my life where I sort of stepped back and said, like, what is the purpose of my life? And not to sound like precious about it, but really like what's what's the point of my career? What's what's the point of being a journalist? Is it again so I can brag and put the New York Times next to my name? Or is it because I believe that there is virtue in the work itself work that is becoming increasingly impossible to do if I want to cling to to the prestige? So Mm -hmm. what I am, of course, wondering if this at all resonates with your experience, and maybe you're not even free to talk about it yet. Which I would totally understand, but you can just blink blink three times if this resonates (laughs) with you.
0: That's right. I mean, I'm interested in how much of it, how much of that was corporate cautiousness and ass covering and kind of legalistic desire to avoid bad PR and upsetting subscribers and like financial imperatives versus, and I'm wrestling with this myself, versus just an ideological um blinkeredness a blindedness a sense that like we sort of we know what the right answers are here why do these troublemaking people like barry keep coming around and asking complicated questions about issues that are actually quite simple like we know what the just you know position here is and so stop screwing around uh you know with your fancy games of free speech and alternative and what about this like we we have the answers so, shut up and suck it. Do you have a sense of which, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah, it could yeah. Be I, mean, I,
1: I experienced it for the first time around um, the Me Too movement, where you know I'm a lifelong feminist, and yet you know I thought this very notion of believe all women reflexively was like an anti-humanist position, and 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 really in a way like just didn't square with reality. Like women can lie just like everybody else. And it doesn't mean that the Me Too movement, you know, wasn't in many ways virtuous and wasn't in many ways overdue. But I remember writing pieces along, uh, around that time, I specifically one called Aziz Ansari's Guilty of Not Being a Mind Reader that went very viral. Um, and, and sort of for the first time made me think, oh, wow, like things that I think are commonsensical in the, like in the world, And that most people in in the country would sort of nod along with and be like, yeah, isn't that obvious? Like in the framework of The New York Times felt like incredibly radical. Um, And again, it was like, as you're saying, but but the frame was the problem. Right. Like if again, there are places that just announce themselves like we are a left wing publication. We are a socialist publication. We are a right wing publication. And okay, so like, you know what you're going to get and they're serving their readers. The conceit of the New York Times, and I think to a large extent, this has sort of fallen away, is the idea that it's supposed to be sort of, as you the, the word you used, capacious. It should be sort of trying to um, give voice to as many possible viewpoints inside the sort of 40-yard lines of American political life as possible. And in fact, it was giving you like a tiny sliver. Mm. And now the reason for that, Part of it, of course, as you alluded to, is like the the problem of audience capture, which you know any schmo with a podcast experiences, and the New York Times experiences. In other words, when the old economic model of having to serve the advertiser was replaced with having to serve your paying customer, everything shifted. Right? It used to be that you had to worry about you know something that would piss off Johnson and Johnson. Now you know, in the case, just not to pick on the Times, it's just the it's the model that I know most. Intimately, like if 95% of your readers are liberals and progressives, like, you know what they want. And what they want is another piece about how Donald Trump is a monster of this destroying democracy. And that's going to go viral and that's going to work very well. And, you know, and it becomes a cycle. And so there's an aspect of it where... It's self reinforcing. It's like no one had to come down from the corner office and say, hey, guys, an op ed saying Donald Mm -hmm. Trump is a monster is going to do well like you would see it do well and you would see it do well because you knew who the audience was and you knew what they liked. Um, So that's certainly part of it. But but I think actually that is condescending toward the audience, because I, I do think that specifically in the case of The Times, people are curious as much as it can annoy people to hear another perspective, they want to. And you could see this often reflected, not to get too tedious, in like reader comments um, and and the things that would get upvoted by other readers where they would be like, hey, yeah, like is J.K. Rowling really a monster? It kind of seems like she's saying something that seems somewhat reasonable, upvote, you know? Mm. So you would see it in that way. But I think the, the big sort of headline story with the Times, and, and this is the case with like, almost every sense-making institution in American life is the story of how a small, ideologically committed, sophisticated, zealous group of people can overtake an institution by using the threat of moral condemnation, a threat that I didn't understand, Josh, until the past five years of my life, how unbelievably powerful that tool Mm -hmm. of social and reputational shame is. But wow, is it powerful? Yeah, and you know, and, and that that was sort of the way that it functioned at the times. And you know, let me just give you a tiny example. Like you could feel yourself, and and I I felt this even inside my own self, like the way that self censorship can work. Because it, again, it's not someone saying to you, maybe don't do that story. Although sometimes that would happen too. It's more thinking. Do I really want to spend the next two weeks of my life battling everyone sitting alongside me? Is it really worth it to die on this hill? You know, if I know that in the case and this there were literally two editorial tracks, progressive uh, op eds would just sail through. And so it was so easy and it would make your life easier to just commission and edit those as opposed to like anything else, like even classically liberal to the right of that would have to go through like four additional layers of editing and everything would need to be contextualized and to be short. And like, by the time you were done, you were just like gray. And you thought to yourself, like, hey, just make your life easier. And I just like the second I sort of felt that inside of me, I, there was something in me that raged against that, where I was like, that's not those aren't my values. And I don't want to give in to that. And I also don't want to spend the next 10 years of my life banging my head against the wall. Um, so it, it, there were there were many to to a long winded way of answering your question. It functioned in like several different ways, but the key thing that was different, I would say, is that like the New York Times had always been a liberal newspaper. What what was different in the past decade, maybe even more so, is that there were people entering the paper who specifically did not believe in the mission of the New York Times and believed that the mission of the New York Times should not be independent or independent to the greatest extent possible journalism, journalism that, you know, would try and reflect the world as it is. But journalism is a political tool. Journalism as a way to assert their vision of the world as they wish it would be. And Mm. that really was the change. And when I wrote at the time about the sort of generational civil war that was playing out, like that is not only the case at The New York Times, the case at so many other institutions as well.
0: I mean, there's a prior change that's even more insidious that's necessary for that change, which is the change in people's understanding of their own fallibility, a change in people's appreciation of their own epistemic limits, a change in people's empathy intellectually for other people's positions. Like, I don't think people are coming into these institutions thinking, I disagree with diversity of opinion and I want to turn this into my own political puppet. I think what they're thinking is, why wouldn't you want this to be a tool for good? Exactly. Why wouldn't you want this to that's be a right. tool for a better that's world? That's right. Why would you want to play around with all this stuff that we already know to be wrong? Correct. And to me, the real so the real problem that's causing all of this in in the media is is less an institutional takeover and more why are the why do these people have this worldview that they can be so deranged as to believe that that is justified because they lack the understanding of like a classical liberal tolerance for a range for, for a diversity of that they disagree with. I mean, that's where exactly me right. all this is coming from.
1: Yeah. They, they don't think that truth is something you get to with, you know, slight nudges, slight discoveries, tweaks, you know, like a push and then an, a counter push and the sort of sharpening that comes from disagreement. They think truth is something that is known and that mm. we need to like spread the good word about what it is.
0: Yeah. I, it's obvious. It's obvious. Yeah, it's obvious. I and mean, I had I had similar run ins during Gay Pride where I was trying to take a position, you know, I'm a bit conflicted about gay pride, and I think I have some standing as a guy who's married to a guy to ask questions about whether there ever comes a point at which it becomes counterproductive to keep pumping young teenagers full of very cliched images of uh oiled up uh, white, gay males, <laughs> uh, you know, sitting astride giant inflatable penises, driving down uh, your Sixth Avenue. Like, is you know, does there come a point at which at which sexual flourishing and emotional well being would be better served by turning down the volume on identity and turning up the volume? So, on sound, you, like you, self-hating,
1: sound like self-hating totally a self hating. Sound like self hating internalized homophobia
0: to me, Josh. That's right. So you know, and like that point of view. Yeah inside an institution that is that has been persuaded that the contemporary gay rights movement is on the right side of history is by definition a retrograde, bigoted, anti-gay, homophobic point of view. So it doesn't need engaging with, and it really shouldn't be aired. Like it, that to yeah, me is the it, change. That's bizarre. Bizarre. It, it,
1: the thing I'm describing as experiencing at the times is that sort of the norm in Australia. Because I always think of Australia as being like slightly more sane than us. Maybe because, well, I don't. I don't actually know why I think that. That was just my impression when I was when I spent time there. People just seemed like I think we are more, more sane. commonsensical. I think we're just
0: less extreme. Yeah, I think we're less extreme in in every way, and that has that's for better and for worse, uh, right? You know, the we wouldn't have elected Donald Trump, but then we wouldn't have elected Barack Obama either. You know, it's America is just a more slightly more crazy place. The dials <laughs> are turned up to 11 in America. Yes. And that that has that has that's one reason why we love it. And one reason why it keeps shooting itself in the foot in various ways. Yeah. Um, but I think there's a coziness in Australia that's not necessarily helpful. There's a there's a um, a sense of, of we have a phrase like she'll be right. She'll be right. What She'll does be that right, mean, mate? I mean it's going to be fine. That's going to be fine. Don't worry about it. You know, like uh, smooth sailing. Don't ruffle right. feathers. Right, like the tall poppy syndrome is an that, Australian phrase. That you know, like, fascinated
1: me. Yes, that's yeah. the opposite of. It's just so antithetical to, I don't know, like that. That Quality. that. Re- well, yeah, but just like, how do you create a culture where people want to take risks and pursue excellence?
0: If it's not a culture of exceptionalism, it's, it's not a culture of egalitarianism, which has right. its own upsides. I think it's a culture of like the fair go, and like every the, no one should be able to fall too far, but also nobody should be able to rise too high. Like, so, what are you? Be... What,
1: so, what are you moving here?
0: <laughs> <laughs> I spent most of my professional life in New York City. I mean, I've only been back here for, for six years now. Uh, and, um, I think, uh, I, uh, be- precisely because of the tenor of the rest of the media in Australia, I think it's ripe for me to go full Barry Weiss. And, um, I, I don't know whether that means actually creating a, a media institution yet. I'll, I'll noodle on that, but I'll certainly spend the next bit of time without bosses and having the conversations that I think Australians are super hungry for.
1: So, oh God. Wow. I'm so ex- I'm we'll so excited for you.
0: Thank you, Barry. Thank you and for I, being here.
1: I do, I do have to say, by the way, that um, it did strike me, and partly this is because the the I've been to Australia exactly once, but I claim to know something about it simply from you that can. that time. You can. No, it's that when we boarded the flight, moms of young children boarded first, and there were also bassinets on the planes for babies. And then, I don't know, that made such an impression on me just because, <laughs> no, but it's pathetic. You don't, I mean, I just, the first time you change a baby's diaper in an airport, in an, air, an airplane bathroom where yes. there's nothing, to, you're just like, oh my God, this is the least family friendly situation in the world. Yes. But also everything about Australia seemed really built for families in a way that You don't see as much here, and it did. It did seem like a genuinely great place to raise children.
0: Yeah, exactly. That was it as well. I mean, it's like who wants to be? You know, I love New York City, but who wants to be struggling with a stroller going down an icy, you know, steps into into the a a subway station, and worrying about what private school your kid is going to get into in order to, you know, like preschool to get into the right, you know, high school and healthcare and just life's more. Americans like making things complicated for themselves when there are actually fairly easy solutions in some ways that other rich countries have figured out.
1: Totally. So, what are you thinking? What are you, um, when you think about going independent, are there guests and and topics that you sort of cautioned yourself away from that now you're thinking you're going to run headlong toward them?
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't want I to, I don't, my goal has never been to just upset apple carts for the sake of upsetting apple carts. So I'm not going to run directly towards the electrified fence and, <laughs> you know, and self immolate uh, just for the sake of it. I just want my curiosity to be able to roam where my curiosity wants to roam. I want my inquisitiveness to feel unbounded. I just want to be able to talk in ways that I think people will find sane and refreshing without feeling like we're constrained inside the proper ways of conversing about proper things there's just so much talking at the moment and i'm not talking specifically about the the abc my employer i'm talking in general terms about culture and media there's so much talking in a ways that are design that seem designed to prove to the audience that we are on the right side of worthy issues instead of to actually wrestle with the meat and guts and blood of stuff and get to the bottom of it so that's all yeah. i'm I want to do. I'm not going in with an agenda apart from that.
1: Are you still going to call it uncomfortable conversations?
0: Yeah, I think that'll always be the flagship show. It's but then great. Do we have offshoots and like do we have sub podcasts and things and like I mean I love what you, what you guys did with the J.K. Rowling uh, podcast Thank it, you. and that was fabulous. Thank um, you. And so you know sub sub projects that either I or other people do within the main project does that end up having a different umbrella name? I mean I. I quit less than a week ago, Barry. Give me a I know, but what I, do you How much planning do you want?
1: <laughs> I have I have grand ambitions for I mean, I just I just think the opportunity is so like here here's the like specific niche that I think is is so powerful if you can hit it and I know you will, is that you have the legacy press. I don't even call it the mainstream press anymore, because I just don't think it's like representative of the mainstream, but you have the legacy press that has the prestige and the glossiness and You know, all of the old rules when they're followed properly, like fact checking, like two sources for every single fact in a story that are extremely valuable. And then you have a lot of people sort of like going wild, going ham in like the Wild West pod newsletter Twitter world. And then you have a sort of great gap between those two things. And the people that can kind of marry the intellectual freedom of the Wild West world without giving in to the conspiratorial rabbit hole tendencies that capture much of that world and can marry that genuine freedom with the responsibilities that come with the best parts of the legacy press. Like, I think that the opportunity for that is just enormous. And that's mm. what we're really, really trying so hard to do um, here. But I just I think people are so hungry for that specific thing. And I think that a lot of the people who are willing to take the risk and have the confidence to leave the old world and build that, like those are the people I'm I'm sort of paying the most attention to because it's like they've had the kind of training that you think that you hope will give them the ability to to pull off that sort of high wire act.
0: Mm. It's a good way of putting it. That's the sweet spot. How do you, lastly, how do you avoid audience capture? How do you avoid drifting towards crazy town?
1: It's a great question. First of all, I think everyone is susceptible to audience capture. There's lots of little tricks you can do. I know Sam Harris never looks at the numbers. And, you know, I've talked to lots of people who I think are pull it off well. For me, it's been about not making it Barry Weiss Inc. Like it's, you know, as I said, there are 20 people that work here and they're not just like producing this show. There's one producer full time on this show. There are reporters who we want to make into, you know, superstars. There are, you know, hosts of other shows that we're developing. The goal is to sort of um, make it the Justice League of people that want to do old school, independent minded, fearless journalism. And for me, that's the trick. Like if two or three years from now. Someone sends someone a link from the Free Press, and my name's not invoked, and it has authority on its own. Like that's that's really the goal. And for me, like I, I have strong opinions about like ten subjects. There are hundreds of other subjects that I either know nothing about, or bore me, or I'm just completely out of my depth. And so for me, it it like this formulation just just makes a lot of sense. And I also think it guards you against audience capture because. There are 20 people here with 20 extremely different views about, say, the war in Ukraine or, you know, American foreign policy. This is just like a topic we've been talking a lot about. And that back and forth, I think, keeps you really honest, um, because otherwise you're kind of just hearing yourself and then hearing the audience talk back to you. Um, But it's it's also a matter of just like, frankly, like discipline and a, a real sense of like what your North Star is, because... It was super clear to me from the early days of this that, like, I could probably run a piece about how bad cancel culture is every single day and make a lot of money doing it and, like, maybe afford a second home for my family. But then I had, a again, a kind of, like, moment of confronting myself the way I had at the New York Times and saying, like, but wait, like, isn't this, wouldn't this be replicating exactly the thing that I criticize those people for doing? And, like, I don't, I've seen enough people become caricatures of themselves. Like, I don't want to do that. Even if it does afford me a second home, like I'd much rather try and build something that lasts, you know, to try and build a new institution in a world in which our faith in the old ones has crumbled. Um, And so in many ways, like the decision to build something that is like a real institution and not just me is a selfish thing because because I I so clearly saw what might come of me if I didn't surround myself with other very very smart capable people who had strong views of their own
0: mm, and i that's think that's way. really really yeah, That's a me. good trick yeah i've been having to do it uh solo in terms of just batting away the people who want to drag you into their alternative echo chamber you know the number of requests that i've had from australia's equivalent of fox news or you know from conservative media outlets saying oh come on and talk about and i'm, I'm like no excuse me i'm not your Puppy dog, don't just think that because I had you know some you know particular beef about freedom of speech or cancel culture that that means that all of a sudden I'm on your side. Like, stop being such ridiculous team players. Like, can't you just be independent? and So yes, but I think you're, you're wise to create support structures around yourself that that keep calling keep you out on bullshit. Yeah, basically. Um, all right, Barry Weiss, Justice League uh, leader extraordinaire. Thank you. <laughs>
1: Come visit us. Come visit us in LA. I will
0: come and I will come and visit next year, and that's a promise. Uh, thanks for thanks for speaking with us. It's great to see you again.
1: Great to see you too. I'm so excited to see what you do.